Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Laura and I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. This week, we have two episodes in the pipe for Ivy League Murders. Given the recent interest, we are re-releasing our Jane Britton episode. There was little or no information about the perpetrator in the recent book about Britton's murder, so we decided to reinvestigate this case and we're working with several sources. We'd like to reintroduce you to our theory of the case. This episode is part one of an ongoing investigation. We also want to remind everyone that we have a website and it's at clovercrestmedia.com. And on our website, you'll find articles about Ivy League murders. We have a donate button. You'll find our merchandise there. And if you'd like to support Ivy League murders, you can go to buymeacoffee.com. It's also on our Facebook group, which is Ivy League Murders Podcast. It's a great way to support Ivy League murders and you can do it in multiples of $5 for as little as $5, a one-time donation, or for no cost at all, you could give us a five-star review. And tell your friends if you enjoy our podcast, oh, please. please tell your friends. Yeah. I also want to encourage everyone to, you know, get in touch with us. Give us, uh, you know, give us a shout out on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Um, Chrissy Carino made our day last week when she gave us a shout out on Instagram and told us that her daughter goes to Northeastern and that she listens to us when she walks the dog. And that was so wonderful to hear. And um, it just really, it means so much when you get a message like that, Sarah, and find Absolutely. out that someone's really really appreciates you know listening to these stories and um so we love to hear from you and we really hope everybody enjoys jane Britton, um, murder at harvard so today on ivy league murders we're covering the jane Britton case a word of caution this is a true crime podcast we will be covering acts of violent murder and disturbing scenarios listener discretion is advised I first heard about the Jane Britton case through a relative of mine. What struck me about the case was, of course, a Harvard connection with Jane. She was a graduate student at Harvard. She was 23, with a promising career ahead of her. Her murder went ice cold for 50 years. As Laura and I started researching this case, we just could not believe the parallels we found parallels between Britain's murder and other similar cases that went unsolved, and connections to the notorious Boston Strangler. There was a serial killer terrorizing Boston and Cambridge who was active shortly after the Boston Strangler. Some of these frightening events happened right in our own neighborhood, Harvard Square. Harvard Square is sort of near and dear to my heart, I have to say, because I think, well, Laura and I both spent or misspent our youth <laughs> in Harvard School. Right, and Sarah, you, you probably misspent your uh, 
more than your just your youth because you went to Harvard. Yes, so yeah, that's true. I still consider that my youth. Yeah, but, yeah. you know the the uh, and Harvard Square is funny. It's changed over the it years. It has changed. Yeah. We should say Sarah and I went to high school a block from Harvard Square. Right, right. So right. we spent our adolescence in Harvard Square, which is why we say it's so near and dear to us. Yeah, and so in in Harvard Square, there's something called the Pit, which is like it's just part of the it's like before you walk down to the T there's like steps down so the pit was like where all the punk rockers hung out all the skinheads from you know Harvard from Harvard Square this is growing up in the 80s you know yeah. and so you know it, it really you would go to the pit to kind of be cool you know and I was never like I was like a totally failed so yeah, I was yeah. I was a failed coal person, but you know some some of <laughs> some of those pit guys are like CEOs of record labels yeah. now. <laughs> and Harvard Square has changed a lot. I have to say, it, it like it used to be really funky, and I I feel like somebody. Uh, it's just become kind of a like an outdoor mall. I hate to say it, but it's so like fancy and precious, and like they they lost all the character from it. I feel like, well, like I, they, they just let like every big box store come the in. The real I think that's the yeah. real estate. When we were growing up, you know, all those stores in Harvard Square were mom and pop stores. I right. mean, I worked at a, a little store and. In, Har- in Harvard Square, it was privately owned by, you know, you know, and that was... You can say the name. <laughs> I worked at Dance Plus in Harvard Square. And, I mean, our owner... Laura's the cool kid, okay. And uh, no, you were the cool kid <laughs> if you worked at like Steve's, um, but... But, you know, all those little stores were privately owned and now they're all, they're all chains. And even today, when we were growing up, Harvard Square has always kind of been the epicenter of, you know, in the East Coast of kind of a liberal you know, kind of where you go with different ideas and, and if you want to be different. It's this, called, it's called the Re, the people's Republic of Cambridge yes. <laughs> for so, good reason. And I know in the sixties, I mean, this was really this one, this is when my parents came to Cambridge and this was really where you went. If you were a different race or a different sexuality, I mean, this is where right. people moved to Cambridge for this reason. And so it was really kind of a city of misfits. And in Jane Britain really kind of, from what I've read, really embraced all of her different neighbors and the community around her. So Britain went to Radcliffe as an undergraduate. She studied anthropology. Um, she went to Harvard as a graduate student. So at the time of her murder, she was an anthropology graduate student. She had gone to Iran. She had found quite an interesting Neolithic statue. And she was a very serious student. She came from a very academic family. She did. Both her parents were professors at Radcliffe. That's right. So she came from a very academic background. She had gone to Dana Hall, which is a private school in Wellesley, Massachusetts, for high school. So she had come from a very academic background. Yeah. And if you look at her, if you look at the pictures of Britain, she has this sort of wistful, kind of intelligent, very pretty face. She just looks wistful to me. It's mm-hmm. hard to explain. But I in reading about her, she really came alive for me because she she was also I mean, I think she, you know, she liked listening to Bach. She she was very intellectual, but she was also for all accounts, she was very funny. She was very open-minded. She had a lot of different friends. She wasn't just sort of like a Harvard snot. Her apartment was a little bit messy. She struggled with her weight. You know, like she was like very right, much like, like all like of a, us. Right. She must have 
Britain must have really felt like she had a lot to prove. Especially in the 60s. Yeah, late 60s. You're in basically like, I bet you an all-male field. And and plus her parents are both uh, academics. So she must have felt, I think she worked very hard at what to get where she got. And she also took her studies very, very seriously. Although it's strange that she went out the night before, you know. I, I, I've never been able to figure that part, but maybe she just wanted to, like, blow off some steam. Yeah, and she came home pretty early. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a crazy night out. No, it I wasn't mean, a crazy night She was home by out. 11. Yeah. It was pretty reasonable. That's true. I just remember at Harvard just, cram- like, making a pot of coffee and, like, cramming the night before yeah. for every exam that I had kind of thing. I don't relate to that with my university, my <laughs> experience. You guys were just having fun. Uh, um, yeah. We used but- other stimulants to stay awake. So, so on January 7th, the next morning, when she didn't show up for this very important exam that she had in her, in her anthropology course, that really set off alarm bells for people. And right, very out of character. And James Humphreys, who was her boyfriend, went to go and check on her. He did. Right. And when he initially checked on her, her body, she was laying face down with blankets over her. He initially thought she was sick and went to a neighbor to get help. And then it was because she was completely covered. And then they uncovered her and discovered that she had been bludgeoned. And so this was a murder that shocked. It shocked Harvard. It shocked the Boston area. If you look at the newspaper coverage, nobody could figure out who would murder this 23-year-old grad student to all appearances. She was friends with everybody. Mm -hmm. People just really liked her. Completely random, no clear motive. Right. And it's actually a, her case went cold for 50 years. But in the meantime, when they found the body, when the police looked at the body, remember, she's an anthropology student. And so what they find on the body is this trail of the stuff called red ochre, which is a stuff that it was a substance like a red dust mm-hmm. that they would use in ancient burial rites. It's something that someone would have been able to access at the anthropology department. So they they had strong suspicions that it was somebody, maybe a colleague, who had murdered her. But so when they find the body, there's this line of this dust, and this dust is kind of spread all over the room. And there's also a stone by her head, which they thought maybe because her head was covered with, what did you say? It was a fur coat and rugs Mm -hmm. that the person was kind of trying to emulate like a burial mound, like what's called a cairn. And so they had strong suspicions that it was somebody who knew her from the anthropology world. And actually, they pointed the finger at an anthropology professor who it was rumored that she had had an affair with him and that he had killed her at the Peabody Museum at Harvard. There are all kinds of theories that flew around for years and years. And like a lot of these things, you know, people's lives were kind of ruined by you know, like a smear campaign. Right, by rumor and speculation. So we'll get back to how Britain's murder was solved. But that building, that University Road building, was also the site 
of a murder by the Boston Strangler. Can you tell us a little bit about Beverly Salmon's a few years prior? Well, in the early 60s, Boston had been gripped by complete terror when 13 women were randomly, you know, with no motive or connection, were randomly murdered. In the period of two years, these women were killed. And these murders were attributed to Albert DeSalvo, who in 1964 confessed to these murders. And he uh, was sent to prison for a series of rapes. He did not go to jail for these crimes. A lot of people think he the Boston Strangler went to jail for the Boston Strangler crimes. He didn't. He went to prison for rape and he confessed to the crimes. Um, he was getting ready to recant when he was murdered. Years later, actually just about eight years ago, DNA connected him to the final Sullivan, the final Boston Strangler case, Mary Sullivan. But we don't, that's the only case we definitively know that he committed. And I've always wondered about the DeSalvo DNA question kind of as a crime person always fascinated me. I thought, oh, well, why doesn't he, why, why don't they go back and test DeSalvo's DNA against the other 12 victims. And Laura, you said they've possibly lost the the evidence. Right. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, and I, you know, perhaps I'm wrong, that what happened in the Boston Strangler case was a task force was set up. And the task force took the evidence from all the different jurisdictions, from Boston police, from Cambridge police, and they took all the evidence. And when the task force was disbanded in 64, nobody really knows where all that evidence went. Right. So because it was sort of multi-jurisdictional, you you would think, though, that there would be an absolute loss. I think also Boston probably was, I think DeSalvo did at least some of those murders. I would, I believe he did at least three. And I think a lot of people agree at least three, but there, you know, there are definitely, I think will always be doubt about the others. Now in Mary Sullivan's case, they found a blanket and they were able to test it and they had to get DNA from DeSalvo's nephew to make that because they had none of DeSalvo's DNA. But that question... And, I, and that was not voluntary, the way they got... It wasn't, it was they, controversial. They, they stopped this guy. He never committed a crime. Right. He was not in the system. When they grabbed a water bottle... A water bottle, yeah. ...that he had drunk out of, tested the DNA, and they so they did it sort of through familial DNA, not in the way that like Ancestry.com, but they were able to find enough markers in common with the nephew, basically to determine that it was DeSalvo. Which I, you know, me as a more of a libertarian, I would be incensed if anyone ever, you know. That's did, why did something I've, like that I've to submitted me. my DNA to Ancestry. Laura has not. I would never, never I never will. <laughs> and I would even stick up for DeSalvo's nephew in that fact that they did that to him. Right, followed right. him around because he was all—he was just going to work. And right. did this that. is an argument. Another that we, argument that we that we will have to have. Don't give your again. DNA to the man. Yeah, that's yeah, all I have to say. Yeah, yeah. So those questions will probably always be out there, and I think crime buffs and scholars will study these crimes for years to come. Absolutely. But now to get back to University Road. To get back to University Road in that exact building, May 6, 1963, there was a murder in that exact building. In a million years, what are the odds 
I mean, we're, we're in an apartment building right now. What are the odds of, you know, two serial killers hitting the same building? And it's not like if you go to four slash six University Road, it's not like a huge high rise. No, we, we just know, went there. It, it, it's like maybe tops 10 apartments. 10 apartments. It's like the, you know? it's very similar to the building we're in now, I would say. Right. And when we, I mean, I had that sense when we were there that it's shocking. Right. So just to make it very clear, in 1963, one of the victims, and Laura and I have some dispute as to whether we think that was a victim of the Boston Strangler or just a copycat. Now, Beverly Sammons, who was, I think, in her early 20s, she was she was found uh, with a stocking around her neck. But But she wasn't strangled. But that was not the ultimate cause of death for Sammons. Right. She was stabbed 16 times. She was stabbed 16 times. So in that exact building, cut to 1969, there, you know, the murder of Jane Britton takes place. So Jane Britton's murder went unsolved for decades. Mm -hmm. It did. Yep. And finally, through the pushing of civilians, actually, the DNA was finally linked to a man named Michael Sumter. And Sumter is kind of an enigma. What do we know about Sumter? We we actually don't know much. And we've been really trying to find out more. We we know he, he's from Boston. We know that he went to Boston public schools. Beyond that, we don't really know a lot. And we know that he spent most of his life in and out of prison. Yeah, it was sort of a career, a career criminal. criminal. And we know that he was in and out of prison primarily for rape and assault. Right. And he has, he, Sumter is a serial killer. His DNA has actually been linked to two other cold cases. So who were these other women that Sumter was responsible for killing? Well, Sarah, what we didn't know when we originally went into this case and we kind of found out was that while Sumner was out on work release in 1972, he raped and murdered Alan Rutchick. Uh, at her Beacon Street apartment in Boston. And Ellen was from St. Paul, and she was an event planner at the Colonnade Hotel. So she was another brunette in her early 20s who was raped and murdered in her apartment, a single woman living alone in Boston. We'll post the pictures of uh, Rutchick and uh, Britain because they do look very similar to me. Yeah, the women actually all look fairly similar to me. And then a year later in 1973, Mary McLean, another young woman in her early 20s, was also raped and murdered in her Beacon Hill apartment. So, you know, you're really seeing a pattern here. And then I, I believe, though, that both the DNA linked Sumter later on though, but like in 2009 and then 2012. Right. You know, no, and then, right. And then in 2018 for, for Britain. So he was not linked to any of these murders. He was in sitting in jail for, for, for rape, not for murder. Right. And I think that's, you know, and, and anyone familiar with serial killers understands it's the randomness of the crime, which makes it so impossible to catch these. Stranger. Uh, stranger. Right. There's absolutely no link to the victim. And when police do victimologies to find out, you know, who the suspects are, they, they look at the victim's life and they go from there and they expand. But when there's absolutely no connection, Sumner had no connection to these women. So his name never came up in any police inquiry. That's right. And these murders, remember, were all pre-DNA. 
pre-DNA. So, right. So, but he, he was never, ever a suspect. Um, no. But the terrifying thing is, is he, in 2001, he was paroled on those rape charges that he had been in jail for 15 years or however long it was. But he died of cancer in 2001. So had he not been, who knows, if he had been healthy and gotten out of jail, he was only 54 when he got out of jail. He could have continued along his path, but he happened to die. Well, I mean, I happen to think there's a lot more victims in this. I don't think you go have a an MO like his. And I mean, he liked young brunette women. I don't think that you just randomly kill, you know, at three year intervals. I, I mean, I think a lot of his crimes probably had to do with when he was out of prison. But I mean, we see other crimes. We have another crime in 19, a month after Jane Britton's crime. We have one a, a half a mile away. Yeah. Yeah. That looks similar. So and we see other ones in the 70s that look similar. We just right. don't have DNA matches. Right, right. So it wouldn't surprise me if in, in coming years we see more connected to Sumner. I just find it very, very interesting that there hasn't been any interest in who this man is as a person. None. He's a serial killer. Mm-hmm. And, and there is literally nothing about his life. We don't know what his family life was like. We don't know what if he was what his IQ was. Nothing. We, we don't, don't know. know if he was in prison and he had a bunch of D reports, which are disciplinary reports. There is nothing, you know, there's nothing about this guy. And I mean, I personally think he chose the university location because that it had been the location of a Boston Strangler victim. Yeah. Laura and I believe that Sumter was, he was a career criminal. He was, uh, you know, um, the the Boston Strangler, you could not live in Boston or grow up in Boston during the 60s and not have been inundated with Boston Strangler news, I don't think. And Mm -hmm. and plus, the as you said, the, the Tony Curtis movie about the Boston Strangler came out in 68. And Sumter would have been 21 at that time. Laura and I think that he was inspired by the Boston Strangler. Right. And he would have already been, you know, uh, having, you know, deviant thoughts, probably already been assaulting women far before that. Yes. You know, I'm not saying that any of this was causation. I mean, I think he would have already been doing those things. And then this was just... Because what is the likelihood that two serial killers, two serial killers hit that same building, that that University Road address? And Laura and I think that maybe it was his homage to the, the Boston Strangler. It was Sumter's nod to the Boston Strangler. Well, I mean, I think your odds of, of being, you know, interacting with a serial killer are like, you know, five zeros and then a nine. Right. Point zero 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 nine. Yes, right. It's actually very very rare. So to have two in one building, I mean, just the, the odds. You know, I can't even fathom the odds. It's just so unlikely. You're right. So I mean, I think that that it, I think that it was probably, in my opinion, definitely that building was chosen. I believe because of you know the prior victim because of Beverly Sammons. So I, I and, but even the murder of Be- Beverly Sammons, she was not strictly strangled. It wasn't really the Boston Strangler M.O. And Laura and I had also had a 
interesting discussion about the victims of the Boston Strangler that there were some that didn't appear to be sort of classic Boston Strangler, you know, a serial killer like the Boston Strangler who left very telltale mm-hmm. uh, indicators like a bow in the pieces that he would use to strangle his victims. There are certain Boston Strangler victims that don't have the telltale signs, and I think Salmons is one of them. You know, she does not, she was stabbed, first of all. Yeah, and and that's what's led to this mystery and mystique of the Boston Strangler case for so many years. And there's actually uh, a good podcast out right now called Strangler, and it's 12 parts, which just explores the Boston Strangler case. So anyone who wants to deep dive into the Boston Strangler case, it's a great way to do it because they really deep dive into the specifics of the case and whether... DeSalvo was the, so I suggest that podcast to anyone who wants to go deeper into the case. The Boston Strangler case is fascinating. A very interesting case, but um, very, very complex. Right. So for, you know, I won't go into it much deeper here, but if you want to go into it deeper, I suggest that. Yeah, I uh, definitely. The other thing is too, that like DeSalvo, Sumter's DNA was identified by familial DNA. It was not, he He was dead, gone, buried, right? you know, by 2001. So he's been dead ever since these murders have been discovered. Basically. Right. So he was never identified as a killer in his lifetime. Right. right. And, and understand that this is still very much an active investigation for Laura and I. And we invite anybody who knew the Sumters, has any information about this guy, any cold cases that seem to fit this MO, because during the course of research, we have found another murder that occurred one month after Jane Britton's murder. Exactly one month. Yep. And it was on a Tuesday, like Britton's murder. Uh, it was on Linian Street, which is less than a quarter mile from the University Road apartments. And uh, the woman's name was Ada Bean. She was a 50-year-old widow uh, living in Cambridge. And she is found in exactly the same way that Jane Britton was in terms of her nightgown had been hiked up. She had been bludgeoned. Her her head had been covered with, I think, coats and coats and uh, blankets, kind of the same burial mound type mm-hmm. of thing. So we believe that Sumter would be a very viable suspect in that murder. And we're also wondering whether his DNA has ever been tested against that. Right, or if they have any DNA. You right. Know, if they have any DNA. And I'm not sure that that, that Adamine was sexually assaulted. And, you know, the, but the, if her nightgown is hiked. If up, her nightgown is hot, I mean, it was a sexual crime. And, you know. But I think Sumter was primarily a rapist. And that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. That if I think that he was a rapist who sort of graduated to killing. He escalated. Yeah. And then I think once he escalated, he may, and that's why I have a hard time believing that he only committed these three murders. I think once you escalate, you often don't de-escalate and leave living. You know, he went to prison because he left living victims, and then he escalates to murder. Right. So it's hard for me to believe that there were not more than three victims. And so we're deep diving into Sumter to try to find if there are any other victims who fit this bill. Adebin is slight is older than the other three victims, but also like DeSalvo, I mean, DeSalvo's victims or the Boston Strangler's victims are all over the map. They're different ages, they're different races, they're but he was an opportunistic 
that apparently part of the reason why his victims are different is that he would just look at buzzers, find a woman's name and buzz it. And DeSalvo would go in and pretend to be, hey, ma'am, you know, you've got a gas leak that super told me to come and check it out. The woman would let him into the apartment and get killed, basically. Sumter, I think Sumter was just kind of a B&E artist. Apparently, though, with Ada Bean, the person who killed her forced his way into her place. Mm. So we're trying to drill down on Sumter, figure out when he was on furlough or out of prison, what are other murders? I Because I think your point is absolutely right. Serial murders, I think once they escalate, they don't just stop. You know, very rarely do they. But no, we they, need more information about Sumter. No, I mean, they the stop fact, when they're incarcerated or dead. I mean, dead. the fact that this mm. is not national news, that there was a serial killer running around a few years after, after the Boston, Boston Strangler. Yeah. Why is this not, it is not hyped. It is not, and we can't figure out why. Well, I think we would be remiss to say that he's not a sexy character. You know, he's not interested, you know, the press likes but him But we don't know if he's a sexy character. Right? We don't know anything. The guy is an absolute enigma. He has an enigma. I mean, I would like to know more about him. Was it, did he have an abusive childhood? What clicked for him? You know, was he intelligent? Was he an idiot? I mean, he's smart enough to get away with murder for decades on end. Well, he got away with murder for his entire life because he never, he never faced the consequences. So that we are also eagerly awaiting a book by a woman named Becky Cooper who also went to Harvard. She's class of 2010. And uh, she has written a book called We Keep the Dead, the Dead Close. And this is coming out in November of this year. But this is very much an open case for us. We are inviting people to post stuff about Sumter. We're, we're inviting people to you know, just explore this with us, you know, because we look at Otta Bean is a cold yet open case. So in other words, let's try to figure out who killed Otta Bean. Right. And we can revisit this case after the book comes out or when we get more information. Yeah. But otherwise, I'm telling you, coming from this case, I thought, okay, oh, great. You know, I knew about the Britain murder. I knew about her connections to Harvard. I thought, okay, we'll have this prim little Harvard case that we'll talk about. And it has been, I'm thinking there's more out there. This is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. Well, and you're a private investigator, Sarah. So now you have a new pet project. I know, but I'm frustrated. I couldn't find anything on Sumter. And I'm good at like finding right, but weird, we're keep digging. stuff. So we're going to keep digging. And we hopefully with our Cambridge network, maybe somebody can find help us find out some more about the victims or about someone. Yes, that's true. We didn't really talk about Rudchick and uh, McLean, unfortunately, but we'll... I think we'll have a follow-up episode. We'll have, like, you know, we'll 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 earmark something for the future, or we can we revisit talk. it with more information. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But in the meantime, you guys know that we have a Facebook page. You know that we have an Instagram. You Cambridge types, you Boston types, who know anything about Sumter or anything about any cold cases that fit the same mo. I I just want to deep dive on Sumter and find out more about him. So help us. Yes. Okay, thanks. So we hope you've enjoyed this re-release of this episode. Keep in mind, this is part one of a two-part series, and we are still investigating this case. So as always on Ivy League Murders, 
Thank you so much for listening and stay safe and stay curious. Murder, murder, murder.